0: Did you guys see this thing? It's really bizarre uh, that it said that if you eat more than a quarter pound of red meat like a day, you have like a 30% higher chance of having cancer. Hey, that is totally wrong. Seriously. That's like a, that's like a cheeseburger from McDonald's. I, I, my wife's always trying to get me to eat meat. I don't know if she's trying to kill me or what. But I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And seriously, 30%? What's up with that? So um, if you haven't been here for a while or whatever, our softball teams, I'll tell you how our softball team's doing. We're doing awesome. Uh, this week, the co-ed and the men's team both won. Woo. It's great. Uh, if you ever want to come watch a game, tomorrow night's game is at 645 at Hagerman, right down. You can come watch it and cheer us on and go, oh, it's terrible. Because uh, we have like three guys on our team that have bum knees. And so they can hit the ball and they get to like base and then they like get there and they go, Runner. Which, it, the only runner they can get is the last person that got out. And usually the people that get out are the guys with the bum knees. So it's like a runner, and the guy with the bum knees all, well, that's me, I can't do it, well, that's me. And so we just sit there looking like Keystone Cops, because we look terrible, because we look... But we're 3-0. But we're 3-0, that's right, that's right. Because we are awesome. Uh, this morning... Uh, we actually had a couple ladies here from a place called the Tamar Center. The Tamar Center is a place that we as elements support and help. It's The Tamar Center is a ministry that, that's in Thailand, and it reaches out to prostitutes. Uh, Thailand has uh, upwards of 20,000 prostitutes, I believe. And so what this ministry does, uh, it goes into the bars where these girls are. Uh, we had a testimony of one of the girls uh, from one of the bars that became a Christian today with us. And, and she talked about how her mom told her to go in a patio to be a prostitute in the bar because there's another family whose daughter went and did it. And now they had a big house and a car. So the mom said, you go and you become a prostitute and you send us back the money and it's it's really sad what happens and so this ministry goes in and they get these girls and they and they give them skills they teach them how to make if you go actually uh, tonight in the back there, you'll see like cards and candles and all kinds of stuff these girls now make. And we are involved in actually selling those things for them. And all the money that comes in does not go to us. It all goes back to Thailand to these girls to pay them a wage so they can actually live and not have to be in prostitution. It's, it's a great thing that somebody's actually tangibly doing with their hands on in ministry i think a lot of times in the american church you hear things like oh believe in jesus so you can go to heaven well if you read what jesus says jesus always talked about bringing heaven to earth by how we live and so we as people should be going out and doing something tangibly with our hands and they are doing that there and it's a good thing to support so when we're done you guys should go in the back and check out some of the stuff also throw some prayers up for them they last year they got uh they had a new building And when you think building, you know, we're in America, we think buildings. It's like this, you you think it would be like a slumlord that owned it or something because they're just nasty buildings, but it's really tall. And they have filled this thing up with girls, and they made a new bakery, so now they're baking bread, and they're selling bread, which they can't actually ship to us to sell because it would be all moldy when it got here. And then you'd be like, oh, they make terrible bread. They like mix mold in it, you know, but they will be like, oh that's terrible. But uh, now they're making they're they're doing a bakery and their bakery is selling like everything they're doing. So it's a great thing that they're doing. So that's why I let you know. If you go to our website, there's actually a link I think to the Tamar Center, right, Mikey? Under the ministries in the bottom? Yeah? Okay. I can't see it. it's like dark in there and I gotta light in my eyeball. I'm like, whoo, it? Alright, why don't you stand with me? Freedom of God's word. Ooh, ooh. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let's pray. Father, tonight I ask that you would come and you would speak to us. You would help us to understand that there is one God and you love us all. God, I ask that we would be a people who worship and honor and listen to you as our Father. Amen. Have a seat. So today's actually might be really good for you. Tonight might be short. Uh, this morning, because we had the people sharing, I actually had to pare down my message. You're going to get a little bit longer one than this morning, but not much longer. So you get a present. And this morning I was very frustrated because I had to get all my information in 25 minutes, which I am not good at. So and I was wasting all the precious time just telling them all these things. So uh, Before we start today, I want to briefly explain to you what is known as the Feast of Dedication. Turn to John chapter 10. Uh, This is kind of where that starts today. Now, if you were here last December, uh, we talked about this in detail... Prior to Jesus coming on the earth from 175 to 164 BC, huge things are happening in Israel. There's a guy, his name is Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a Syrian king and a power-hungry nut job, and he has control of the region of Israel. Antiochus, he loves all things Greek, all things Greek culture and Greek religion. In order to consolidate his control in all the places that he conquers, what he does is he makes everybody assume the Greek religion. So they would go in and they would take whatever gods you worship, they would add them to their own gods called the Pantheon and everybody would worship all of these gods. Now that works great everywhere except in Israel and the Jews because the Jews worship one god and they will not worship any other. Antiochus wants complete political control of Judea, so he declares war on God's people. He marches into Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem. He takes the Jews' temple. And history records that he killed 80,000 men doing this and sent another 80,000 people off into slavery. 168 to 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the Jews' temple in Jerusalem. He erects a statue of Zeus in the holy place and he commands the Jews that they are supposed to sacrifice pigs on the altar of God to Zeus this is terrible if you're a Jew the outer courts. some historians say that the outer courts were actually turned into brothels So there's prostitution going on in the temple of God. The whole temple filled with pagan idolatry. Everything is done to destroy the worship of the one true God. Now if you possessed a copy of the scriptures, the Torah, the law, you would be executed for having that. If you were a mother and you had your child circumcised as the Jewish law prescribes for Jewish mothers and the government found out, you would be nailed to a stake and your child would be hung around your neck. That is how bad this is. So there's various revolts that take place over time. But nothing is able to retake Jerusalem or the temple until uh, there's a little village called Modin. It's outside of Jerusalem. And a Greek uh, officer and some of his soldiers come into the town. They bring an altar with them and some pigs. And they come to this town and they grab a guy named Mattathias. He was a Jewish priest. And they brought him out and they said, Okay, you are going to sacrifice this pig and you're going to worship Zeus on this altar. And Mattathias says, Nope. And then another villager goes, I'll do it. And Mattathias, at this point, he is tired of all the people being killed in his country. He's tired of his God being defamed. He's tired of everything that these people are doing to his people. And so he goes all brave heart, pulls out a sword, kills the other villager that steps forward, kills the, the officer, and then his sons jump on and they kill all the other officers that are there. Then they run away to the hills as you do when you go all braveheart, you run to the hills and, you know, and everybody comes, it's not my, it's my island, you know, and you, and you all get up there and you, you talk. So basically Mattathias dies in the course of some of these battles and his son Judas Maccabee becomes the leader of this army. And in 165 B.C., Judas Maccabee and his soldiers are able to go back and take Jerusalem and retake God's temple. And they finally get into the temple again and there's weeds growing in the temple of God. This is something that should never happen. So their hearts are broken. Everything of value in the temple uh, is broken, defiled, or it is missing altogether. So Judas goes in and he, and he removes this uh, image of Zeus. He removes the altar and he builds a new altar. And then they dedicate this altar, hence the Feast of Dedication. And when you dedicate this altar, there's a thing called a dedication lamp, a menorah. And they want to light this dedication lamp. But they only have enough oil to burn for one day in this lamp. And the lamp is supposed to burn constantly. So they light the lamp anyway. And the one day's worth of oil lasts eight days. Eight days is the time it takes to make new oil. Okay? So what happens is this is called the Feast of Dedication. Dedication, the festival of lights. This is what's called Hanukkah. Okay, This is the holiday of Hanukkah. And this is a celebration that's being remembered at this point when you start this section today. Jesus is in this temple and he's creating a revolution of his own at this point because the religion had lost its view of who God was. And so he's coming in and renewing something kind of just like Judas Maccabee did. So John 10, verse 22, this is where we go. You guys ready? You got your Bibles open? You're like... Bible what is that do they sell those somewhere if you don't have a Bible talk to us we will give you one you will give you one it's not the greatest Bible in the world it's a they're pretty cheap so if it rains don't put it out like this because it'll soak up like a sponge and be like this big and you don't want that but we'll give you one okay john ten twenty two 22 it says then came the feast of dedication at jerusalem it was winter and jesus was in the temple area walking in solomon's colonnade now this is the new temple solomon's temple was actually destroyed but some of the pieces of solomon's temple were actually still there there were some remnants around these remnants were called solomon's colonnade or uh, i think i've said yeah here's some pictures they're called solomon's colonnade or solomon's porch these are the older sections of the temple. And there would be columns that are about 40 feet tall and there is a wall around these columns. And people would come in the winter and they would sit in these walls because it was there out of the wind. It was a little bit warmer and they would come and sit there for people to teach them. You know, kind of when, when it gets cold in wintertime, we shut the doors and turn on the heaters. Because we're smart like that. Okay, so the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Some people actually believe that Judas Maccabee, when he was alive and he retook the temple, was actually the Messiah, but he wasn't. Jesus, at this point, has told the woman at the well that he was the Messiah. He told the man born blind that he is the Son of God. And Jesus has been revealing himself, and now they press him on that question, the Messiah question. Are you the Redeemer that was promised? This is a mixed bag of people. You have some who want to believe, and they want to follow. You have others who want to know because they would just want to kill him for blasphemy. This message of the Messiah has been used for hundreds of years by God to inspire hope in his people. But the Jews now have laid all kinds of extra meaning on top of God's meaning. They said, well, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a political leader who would lead a revolt. And so Jesus, I think, has a hard time answering the question because they have preconceived ideas about who he was supposed to be. It's like they come up and they say, okay, we got a box. It's called the Messiah box. Can you fit in that Can you make it in there? Because this is my box. This is what I got. This is the problem with many people today when it comes to Jesus. They have a box and they think this is how Jesus has to act. This is what he has to look like. This is who he has to be in order for me to believe in him. Jesus needs to fit in this box. And when he doesn't, they don't believe. But scripture tells you that Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. He determines our belief, not our boxes. So they say, are you the Messiah? Tell us. Verse 25, Jesus said, I did tell you. It's like, hello. Okay? But you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So Jesus first appeals to his works. In Isaiah 35, it says that when the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. In the last chapter, you see that Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. So he opens the eyes of the blind. Okay, check. It says the lame will walk. Check. People are going to be fed. Check. Streams of living water will come from this guy. Check. Jesus demonstrates his authority. He says, You don't believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 27, he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Some people, when God speaks, they go, Yes, I I recognize that voice. You feel it deep down in your soul. That's the voice of my dad. Some people ignore it and they keep going their own direction. Now, if you are a parent... Or you have a parent, which should be all of you, unless you're some freaky alien baby or something like that. Okay, you, This is kind of how it goes. You, you have a kid, and kids run around and do all kinds of stuff, and at about age two or three, their sole goal is to get away from their parent. It's like, I'm two or three, and they're like, and every time you get back, here, and they're like, and they're running away. And when they actually do get away, they have a total mental breakdown. They're like and you got to go in and you got to pick them up. Now, kids think this is, this is very funny. And you're like, stop it, stop it, stop it. And they run around and stop it, stop it, stop it. And it's all great until a dad gets tired of it and a dad goes, stop it. Because as soon as a dad says, stop it, and uses that tone, that becomes something different completely. See, I think dogs are like this. See, kids, dogs. Okay, yeah, that works that way. Uh, I have this dog. My, my dog's name is Zan. My dog is 110 pounds. My dog will not listen to you if she does not want to. She will do whatever she wants to, eat you, Okay, run over you, eat your dog. My friend John has a dog, his name is, her name is Rukia, total nut, just seriously, you don't want to be around this dog, it's like a total insane dog. Uh, and so if my dog is doing like all this stuff, and as soon as I walk up and I go, Zan, she goes, and she, and she poops on the spot. No, she, you know, <laughs> she, but she knows that voice and she stops and she listens. A kid, when you hear the tone of your dad's voice, you know by his tone what kind of mood he is in. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. When I speak, they are going to listen. He says, I have done miracles and I speak for God. Verse 28, he then says, I give them eternal life. Eternal life is a gift from God. You don't get that with your resume. You don't get to go to God and say, okay, here's my resume. You know, last year uh, for 20 minutes I drove the speed limit while going down the freeway. Therefore, you need to forgive me. It doesn't work like that. Forgiveness is a gift from God. Eternal life is God pouring His life into us here and now. And we start to live and change and become the people God made us to be. And this goes on for eternity. Our lives become hallmarked by joy. Joy is not the cessation of trial or we don't, we're not pain free. But we realize that life is a gift from God and we live in that joy. And that joy goes beyond our grave through the resurrection. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish like Jesus. No one can snatch them out of My hand. My father who gives them who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And I love this analogy because when I first became a Christian, people used to tell me that God reaches down this far, and then you've got to reach up, and you've got to grab on and you've got to hold on for dear life. And if you ever let go, you're screwed. Because it's just over. You know, you lose all your love and and commitment from God because you let go. But scripture teaches the exact opposite of that. Scripture teaches that it is God who holds you and I. And people tell me this all the time. They say, and they go, well, oh, I have friends and relatives and they used to be a Christian. And I'm like, what they do, graduate? You know, what, 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 happens, what happens with that? Say, so no, they used to believe and, and now they don't and they're no longer a Christian. Oh, well, that's not possible. That's not possible. Either they never knew God or they're in tremendous rebellion just like the prodigal son and God's going to go grab him and yank him by the underwear. He's going to bring him home and clean him up. Because it is God that holds us. Jesus says salvation is you embraced by your Father. God is our Father. There should be nowhere safer than in God's hands for people. Uh, new dads totally make me crack up. Because they, they hold their little baby for the first time. And they're like, whoo. And they hold on for like dear life. Because if they drop it, they're going to be on the couch until Jesus comes back. right? So they're like, they're like oh, hang on like this. But, but I love when, when they hold little babies. And, and, they, and little babies go like this. And they kind of grab on like this. Now, it's not going to do any good if the father lets go, right? This on a baby, they're going to just hit the ground. It is the father that holds them. It is the father that keeps them safe. Their father loves them. That is what Jesus is saying. When we are people who can learn how to trust and believe like that, that God holds us, we can then live our lives without fear and we live in great freedom revelation 7:10 says salvation belongs to our god jonah 2 9 says salvation comes from the lord it is in god's hands so we are safe it is a gift you cannot lose what you did not earn the question when people say can you lose it i'm always like the question is not can you lose it the question is can someone can someone overpower god and take you from god no nobody can god cannot fail so jesus makes this very deep statement he says, he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And in verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. Now, this would ring in the Jews' ears very strongly because three times a day, the Jews would recite the Shema, the first verse I read to you tonight, Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the word for one here is the word echad. Everybody say echad. Yeah, and then you go spit that out when you get outside, okay? Ah, and just wipe it off. Echad, it means singularity and plurality. They use it of grapes, one cluster, many grapes. Essentially, it says this, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one gods. Sounds weird, but it's an inference, I think, to the Trinity. Christians believe there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each is unique, each is a person, each is distinct. But they are one God. You know, if you came to the, the gospel class that we do on Monday nights, you could have asked me all these questions. But if you didn't come, oh, well, see, it's your loss. Bummer for you. Uh, Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one God, Father, Son, Spirit. The Jews know exactly what he is claiming. Uh, verse 31 says, that, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Leviticus twenty-four sixteen says, if you claim to be God and you're not, you deserve to die. And the way they do this is they pick up rocks and they throw them at you till you die. Not a fun way to go. And it says, but Jesus said to them, and I, lo- I think he's just picking at them now and just mocking them, which I think is funny. He goes, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? I don't them. Thank you. Thank you very much. And they said, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you a mere man claim to be God. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. His followers made up those crazy stories. If you have your Bible, you should circle that verse right there. So when anybody asks you go right there, Jesus claimed to be God. He and the Father were one. And the Jews go to stone him because of that claim. Jesus believed in one God. And he believed he was that God. And he's either telling the truth. If he's telling the truth, you follow him. He's either lying. And if he's lying, you can't listen to anything he said. Or he's a nut job. And if he's a nut job, you shouldn't follow him because you'll end up wearing the same white sneakers and drinking Kool-Aid and waiting for the comet. And it's not... Boy, you guys are a tough, tough crowd. Okay, so the people understand completely what Jesus said. And this is a perfect time to clarify if he meant something different. But he doesn't. He keeps going and he treads into very deep waters at this point. In verse 34 it says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. So he restates what he just said and how the Jews respond. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, many people have gone nuts over this verse. Verse 34, I have said you are gods because they misinterpret what Jesus is saying. It is interesting that the Jews here talking to Jesus did not misinterpret what Jesus says. They know Jesus wasn't calling them gods. They know that he was only claiming himself to be God. Religions get broken down into two basic categories. Monotheism, this is like one God. This is Muslims, Jews, and Christians, one God. Polytheism, many gods. It's like Mormonism. Mormons will tell you if you're a really good Mormon and you're a dude, and one day you'll get your own planet and you get a bunch of spirit wives and they get to be eternally pregnant and populate that planet for you. I have no idea why that's appealing to women. You know, if you're a dude, you get to become God, and if you're a woman, you get morning sickness forever. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I, I don't get that. Hinduism, you got millions of gods. You know, I know I pick on Mormonism a lot, but they like to misuse this verse and say, Aha! Jesus taught there were many gods. See? No, he didn't. Okay, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 82. Because this is what Jesus is quoting from. Psalm 82. Yay, people in the back row. Psalm 82. All right. Uh, when the psalmist uses this, he's referring to the concepts of rulers. In Jesus' day, there were lords, and then there was the Lord. Lords had authority, but then there was capital L, God. Jesus is distinguishing here. There have been kings, and then there is the king. Okay? Psalm 82 says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Then God speaks, and He says, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? He says, Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He is talking about judges and rulers, and they are not judging rightly. Men who have been appointed to bring God's law to bear on human dilemmas. Men who are established to bring God's justice to bear. Men who have been placed to act in the place of God. When you look at these men, you are supposed to be able to see what God was like. Just like He calls us to also be that. These men are not eternally existent. They are men with authority speaking for God. But because they are sinning, they aren't doing this rightly. Verse 5 says, They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods; You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. So he tells you they are just men. And he contrasts that with himself as the only true God. And it says, Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all nations are your inheritance. Now, if you Bible, turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah. Uh, 43 is where we're going to start here. Sometimes people will ask you uh, very complicated questions and maybe sometimes you will not have the answers and I don't want you to look foolish when people question you about your faith. I think Peter says that, that we should do our best to show everybody you know, wh- why we have the hope that we do within us. And so when you get asked some of these questions, I want you to have an answer for this one. So sometimes people will ask, you know, why do you believe there is one God and Jesus is that God? Well, we can't just go, well, uh, it's just there, okay? I'm going to give you this big concept. Bring it down. How do you know there is one God? Isaiah, you can just start circling these as we go. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 10. This is God talking. He says, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. He goes, It's just me. There's no one else. You may watch TV and listen to everybody else talk and come up with their own thoughts and opinions, but I don't care because I'm the only one. You know, I don't recognize any of those guys. It's awesome. Um, verse 15 in, in chapter 43 uh, he says I am the Lord your holy one Israel's creator your king God refers to himself as the holy one uh, Isaiah 44 it's right over verse 6 this is what the Lord says Israel's king and redeemer the Lord almighty I am the first and I am the last apart from me there is no God well that's pretty clear 44 verse 8. He goes, I think it's down at the bottom. Of uh, you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And if God does know of any other gods, then there's not any other gods. Uh, chapter 45. Okay? Verse 5. Uh, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Uh, verse 14, at the end of that, it says, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Uh, verse 18, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Uh, verse 21, who foretold these things long ago, who declared it from the distant past. Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior? There is none but me. Flip over. Chapter 46, verse 9. Getting the point? Okay. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I mean, even if you're not real bright, you kind of get the idea, right? One God. What's God trying to say? Uh, maybe there's one God. Yeah, that's what we got. You know, when, when you go through Scripture and you interpret the Bible, there's this thing called the rule of perspicuity. And what that means is you interpret something that is less clear by something that is more clear. If you have a thousand verses that say there is one God and you read something that kind of seems it's a little ambiguous, you interpret that one verse in light of the thousand others that you have. Cults and bad Bible teachers do this bad stuff all the time. They take one verse and they try and make it for everything else in Scripture. You take the obvious. You take the obvious and you interpret the less obvious by it. I mean, this is like any relationship. If I, if I told my wife every single day that I love her, I, I love you, I love you, and I'm a, this year I'll be married 17 years to my wife, and if I one day walk in and I forget to say I love you, should she go, he didn't say he loves me today. He must not love me anymore. He must hate me. Oh, my goodness, this is terrible. No, she should interpret that maybe I just forgot that day because I've said I love her for 17 years. That's the point. You have a thousand verses that says there's one God, one kind of seems a little different. You don't go off the deep end with it. You know, if God is clear throughout human history and something else is vague, you stay with what is clear. Jesus and the psalmist refer to gods. It is not multiple deities. He is talking about men that have authority, who are doing things that are wicked and sinful, doing things that should not be done. A a priest's job, was there so that you could see what that God was supposed to be like. You're supposed to be able to look at that priest and say, well, this God is like this because this guy follows him, so this God must be like this. These were men in places, religious places, who were supposed to be bringing God's light and judgment and truth to bear, but they were doing it wrongly. Does this ring any bells? Yes, exactly. Sounds like the religious leaders who are questioning Jesus and want him dead for speaking the truth. That is exactly what's going on. They ask him this question, and Jesus goes, Oh, oh, you want to know what this is like? Let's go. And he tells them, he goes, This is you, and I am God, and you are nothing like me. Nothing. I mean, they know exactly what Jesus just said, because in verse 39 it says, Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And this is what I love about this section that, that when he eludes them, this is where he goes. This is actually my favorite portion of this entire section of Scripture. Verse 40 says, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed. It's like all the craziness of the religious nuts and these are ah, he's like, I've got to get out of here. And so he goes. And he goes to this place called the Jordan River, where this all began for him, where his ministry began. This is the place where his freaky after wearing bug eating nut Grizzly Adams cousin comes out of the woods going, Repent Oh Wow, overload the mic, sorry. Going, Repent, repent. You know, and and he looks eating bugs and, and sugar when you raise a kid on bugs and sugar, he's not stable. So he comes out and he he screams, and this is where he was commissioned to public ministry. John the Baptizer, he is now dead and gone. Jesus' death is coming up right around the corner. Actually, next chapter, what you see is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then the next chapter after that is when he makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is—it is It is right before his death, so I think he's resetting himself. And I think this is a place for remembrance for him. Um, where the baptism of the, of the Father and the Spirit they come down, and they basically say, "Here we go, this is it we 're going in the Old Testament, they had these things called stones of remembrance. these were called Ebenezer stones, and when a battle happened or God showed up and did something, they would build these mounds and it would remind them that, that God met us here. God did this thing here, and so they, when, they, when they got really far away from God I'm like I, where is God they would come back and they go, "Oh yes, God met us here, here." And, uh, you know, it was also places for future generations that would come back to, the, to these mounds of stones and be like, yes, God met our people here. Stones of remembrance. I think the Jordan River for Jesus is a place like that. That's like a place of a stone of remembrance. I think we all, if you're a believer, have a place like this where God met you and God spoke to you and God renewed you and God revealed himself to you and we believed. I have places like that physically and I have places like that in scripture where I read and I'm like, yes. Yes, this is where God spoke to me. When trial or struggle or things come up, I go to places and I remember God is faithful. Go back to where I kind of began. I had this guy when I was 17 years old uh, is when I became a Christian and he introduced me to Jesus. And he's, he's a great guy. He, he lives up north now and I actually periodically call him. Uh, he was my youth pastor for a few years. And it's kind of interesting. When I was in high school, uh, you either got drunk or you went to a Bible study. Sometimes I did both, which got me in trouble. Um, but but he, he meets me, and he talks to me, and he loves me, and he loves God, and he spends time with me. He answers my questions. He invested in me. And every once in a while, I call him, and we just chit-chat. We talk about life and, and where we came from, and, and we kind of reset each other. And we remember where God met us, and God changed us by introducing us to each other. Jesus goes here to the Jordan. It says, here he stayed, verse 41, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. I can't think of a better way to actually end a chapter of scripture as that, because these are great words. Lots of people were hard-hearted and wanted him dead, but many came and many responded and many believed. And that should be our prayer, that many would hear and many would follow him. Actually, in my quiet time, every single morning, I actually pray for Element and you guys. That that is my prayer for you, that you would follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. He has said in the previous chapter that that we know we are his students when we continue to continue in his instruction. I mean, I've talked tonight for, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes or something. You know, and we get to hear Jesus' word speaking to us again. We are all people who are invited to believe and have eternal life, to trust our Father and believe that no one can snatch us out of his hand. This is this is one of the reasons why communion is so cool. Because communion is like a stone of remembrance. It is a place where we come and we reset and we and we see communion, and it's like this is where Jesus died, and when you and you break that that crack and it resembles his his body, which is broken for you and I, and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. This is a place of remembrance. And we realize that in the gospel, we were separated from God. Our sin separated us from God. The penalty for sin was death. And Jesus came and he died for us to pay that penalty. Then he rose and raises us to new life so we can be people who place our arms around the neck of our Father. It's a beautiful concept. And it is always remembered right here in communion. So tonight we do, we worship God through communion. We're going to actually worship God through prayer. There's some elders and deacons here. And if you are somebody who doesn't have a stone of remembrance, you don't have a place where you go back to, maybe you've never even met Jesus, talk to them. They would love to insert, introduce you to Jesus. You know, if maybe, I don't know, this crazy building that used to be a car dealership, you know, becomes your stone of remembrance. in five or ten years when they tear this place down and you drive by and maybe you have kids... And you're like, hey, kids, see that place right there? Yeah, that mound of dirt. That is where God met me. And it was amazing. You know, maybe you're a believer and and you just feel really far, like like you feel like you're clinging on and not being held. Pray with one of the elders or deacons. They would love to pray with you about that because God longs to let you know that he holds you and you can be safe in his arms. The band's going to come up we're going to do a couple songs. And these songs are there to help us to focus and remind us who God is. We worship God through giving. There's offering box on the side wall in the back of the room. There's some Tamar stuff, like I said, out those doors in the back. You should all check it out. Even if you don't buy anything, just go check it out because it's pretty cool. And then we also worship God through fellowship. And I think one of the coolest things about fellowship is this. When we talk to other people, we get to go up to other people and say, Yeah, you see that box that you have that God's supposed to fit in? You just kick it and say, you don't need that because God doesn't fit in your box. God, he, he shatters our boxes because he is too great and majestic and big for our boxes. And I love that about him. You go to God with a box and God's going to go, who do you think you are? <laughs> you don't fit in that stupid little box. I mean, we have to be people who allow God to be God and then realize that we are in his hands and that we are as sheep and we should listen to his voice and then we follow him and we get this ministry to walk into the world and tell everybody about the goodness and grace of who God is and how he longs to hold everybody free of boxes, free of boxes. We as sheep get to be that. James is going to come up and pray for us. And just take a minute tonight to where's your place of resetting? You know, Jesus is the only God and He holds you. Let him out of your box to be the God that he is. That's-
1: you guys pray with me. God, we do. We we we're just so stuck that you shatter our idea of a box, God. That that you are too big to fit in any box that we could think of. And we thank you so much for that for destroying that image that we have, God. We thank you for those places, those, those Ebenezer's that you've given us, God, those places that, that you've come to us and that you've touched our life, that you've met with us, God. God, I pray that we would be a people that, that love you, that we would love our Father, that we would recognize your voice. We would know and listen to the shepherd's voice. And follow that. That we would hang on to you, God. And we thank you that even when we let go of you, that you're there holding on to us. And that we know it is not by our doing that we're saved, God, but by your grace. God, I pray that through that, that we would live a life that shows your love and your forgiveness that you've given us to others. That through us your name would be glorified, and people would be get people would understand the forgiveness that you offered to them, and to us, God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.